Hey everybody, it's Margaret. I'm back again with another episode of Authentic Obsessions. This is the third of six episodes I'm airing as part of a collaboration with Frank Juarez and Art Dose Magazine and his annual group exhibition, Indiana Green, which features Wisconsin artists and is being held in Wausau, Wisconsin at the Center for Visual Arts this year. The opening reception is July 23rd and you can see the exhibit through September 11th. This year's show explores the tactility of material, tenacity, and the presence of the handmade. Today you're going to hear from Nicole Shaver from Port Washington, Wisconsin, who creates artwork inspired by ideas of place and belonging. She researches different geographical sites and employs them as metaphorical compasses to create landscapes combining reality, fantasy, and memory. During our conversation, Nicole talks about her dump and dash process, several of her early jobs, including one where she's documenting Eldo Leopold journals. And of course, we talk about her obsessions with geology, objects, and landscapes. All right, if you like this episode, if it resonates with you, please share the episode with a friend. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It will help more people find us. Thank you so much. All right, enough from me. Let's hear from Nicole. Hi, Nicole. I'm so happy you're here today on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Margaret. I'm really excited. You are one of the five artists selected for this Indiana Green exhibit that's curated by Frank Juarez and Art Dose Magazine. But I'd like to start off by asking you just a little bit about your creative path. Yeah, and it begins um, very early, maybe, <laughs> as an artist. And I think my my impetus for making work comes from a very young age of being having separated parents and on Sunday packing all my things that I needed for the week into the luggage and going to the next house. And I think my like my love for space and my love for things really comes from that action that every movement is very calculated and the things that I bring with me to that space are very specific to the things that I want to accomplish in that landscape or in that space. So I think if I'm trying to attribute like my artistic practice, I think it's all the way back to them of like this nomadic kind of practice. And I'm, I just am uh, an object type person. I love objects, um, which really started my interest into geology and my artistic practice. My beginning as an artist, I think, comes from natural curiosity and picking up things around you and saying, what the hell is this? And kind of that action of putting it in your pocket and bringing it back home to further investigate under a new lens. That's um, really natural to me as an artist. At the beginning, maybe I would go down to the beach in Port Washington where I grew up. And that practice of picking up a rock is something that I still do. Um, So I grew up in Port Washington, Wisconsin before we get too carried away. And I ended up going to UW-La Crosse for a year. And I decided um, I needed something more. I think I needed to be in a bigger pond. And I quickly transferred to UW-Madison and was surrounded by just artists that paved the way and gave me permission to make work about uh, my personal narrative. I was learning from Fred Stonehouse and Nancy Mladenoff, John Hitchcock, Francis Meyer, these artists and really talented painters and printmakers who 
took their narrative stories and ran with it. I was used to um, like Thomas Kincaid and these kind of like really kitsch conventional ways of making images that I didn't know that creating your own language and your own vocabulary was a possibility, which was really kind of an amazing thing for me to learn at Madison. And I just kept getting yeses for all these crazy ideas that I didn't know I had to, that I could ask permission to do. And I really investigated printmaking and painting at UW-Madison and got to learn from some. Jack Damer taught me lithography, my very first printmaking, printmaking course, which was terrifying also. As a first printmaking course, lithography is probably not recommended. But coming at it as like this fake scientist that I always kind of considered myself to be, lithography was like this kind of crazy magical chemistry with the stone that you got to create an image from. It was just like mind blowing to me that that was an artistic practice. Can, can you just explain that very quickly? Yeah. What that process is? Lithography. Yeah. For people who might not know. Yeah. Um, so it's not a big piece of limestone. Usually, I think it's limestone, right? Four inches, five inches thick. And they come in all different kinds of sizes, depending on the format that you're going to print with. But you can directly draw onto that stone with greasy pencils, inks, tushes. But the idea is that that the grease and the oils from those those drawing mediums, they absorb into the stone, which is amazing. And then you do this part where you etch it. So you put you mix up gum Arabic and maybe like four drops of nitric acid and you take your hands and you you rub this gum arabic nitric acid solution over the top of your drawing and it etches it into the stone so all of those oils and things they re they resist where the the acid is trying to get down in so it's kind of a reverse process and it takes a while for your brain to to try to figure out how that image is working um but you etch into the stone and then you sort of you you clean it off you erase all of the greasy materials and that gum arabic and actually the stone then looks there's nothing on it you've cleaned it which is wild because all of the chemical processes have gone down into the stone so then what you do is you roll up with oily or with um, oil-based ink a, a roller that's made out of leather and it's never cleaned it's just like a beautiful object right it's like caked on with years of printmakers making images on it and you roll up your stone and that image starts to appear again. And that's a wild kind of thing. And in between that, you're sponging it with a, a wet sponge and you have to work with somebody too, which is like a really beautiful kind of collaborative process that's just necessary to make this image. And you get to send it through the press. And um, I think I was just like so blown away by this whole process that went along with making work, artwork that I didn't really realize was um, a whole factor and that you could really become a master in that in that print process you could devote your whole life into making to be able to make the perfect kind of image but even better yet I'm the kind of artist that doesn't like to do what I'm told <laughs> and I think that's probably why I became an artist was like I just I simply can't be told what to do and to be able to learn that process and then say I'm not going to do that that's kind of my whole trajectory as an artist. I want to know, but then I really don't want to do that. <laughs> I 
I think that's a lot of artists that we we find ourselves as like we're really introspective and almost kind of renaissance type people where we want to know all of the all of the knowledge but then we really are specific with the kind of knowledge that we want to um, adapt <laughs> okay thank you for that segue so I'm still in UW-Madison I'm okay. so like freaked out by printmaking. I ended up staying there a lot longer than I thought. As I think a lot of artists do when you find this like great community of support. And at my time at Madison, I was fortunate to have some really interesting um, job positions that I think really kind of shaped the way that I think about making work and also from an archival standpoint. So I was working at the UW Memorial Library in their digital collections. So my very first job as a freshman was to take old theses and digitize them, scan them, and put them into their database. And then as I started to grow with them more, that got uh, more rare books and things to digitize, which was really exciting. I think my last project there was to document all the Aldo Leopold journals. Oh, They're like tiny red ones. And his handwriting is so like uh, script and like, me having them in real life was hard to read, but like that tactile object, I just couldn't get over. And it was such a, an intimate experience because it took maybe two to three months for me to digitize this whole collection. And every page I have to flip and take a picture high resolution. And so I really just started to love objects. I think like sitting down with them and seeing how their longevity and their whole lives, even after you're gone, what can happen with an object. And how that's digitized and put into a whole nother space where it's accessible to all kinds of people that might have the same interest and love for that kind of object. And I really liked that position, but then I got word of uh, book conservation that was also happening in the basement. And so I'm like, oh, okay, I figured out how to do this thing, but now I really want to know something new and a new skill. And so I think I was there for two or three years in book conservation and taking all these rare old books from the libraries at Madison, which I learned there's a fact, if you put all of the books at UW-Madison libraries from end to end, they'll reach from the moon and back. So forget how many libraries they have, but they have 30 libraries, I think, on campus. Any book that was pulled off of their shelves that was kind of falling apart or needed to be rebound got sent to us. So was kind of like um, taking all these things that were just at the brink of the end of their lives and put stitching them back together and putting them back into the places, probably knowing that no one's ever going to check them out again. Or like sometimes I'd get the card, the library card, and you can see somebody's not checked this out since 1972. That history of objects really lingers in my whole practice. And I think maybe that's per- probably where that started from. Um, after my time at um, UW-Madison, I, and I was able to do some printmaking as a studio tech, learn a lot more about printmaking and how to run a studio there. And uh, I just lingered around artists that felt really good to be around. And I think that's important to find your like tribe and stick there until it, it feels too stale, maybe. And I just decided to, from undergrad, move to Charlotte, North Carolina. Why, you ask? Uh, my family was there. My sister lived down there, my aunt and my uncle and my cousins. And I heard that Charlotte was a really great city for the arts. And I thought, great, I want to just try something new. Um, After getting my undergrad degree, I was supposedly armed with the degree that might get me someplace. And 
So I moved down to Charlotte and stayed with my aunt and my uncle. And I drove to, they live down the suburbs. I drove to Charlotte every day and I applied to any job that I could find um, internship wise. And I ended up interning at the Mint Museum as their like uh, continuing education intern. So I designed a lot of these like scavenger hunts for kids when they come in to utilize the exhibition and all kinds of odds and ends. Um, education for museums. So I got to learn a lot about being at a, you know, one of these amazing museums where I walk, I walk past a mother well every day to my office. And that was a really great place to be around this, like people, I love to be in situations where I'm learning and being really challenged. At the same time I was interning there, I was also interning at the McCall Center for Visual Arts, which is a great residency in a like old Gothic church. And I was an intern there for artist residency. So I just got to work with all their artists in residence and um, like run with their crazy tasks. Like, oh, do you, you need boxing gloves that are um, embroidered with specific wordage? Like, let's figure out how to do that. Who can get that done? Who can embroider a caution tape with specific lettering? How can we make the biggest thumbprint screen print? Um, so I just like troubleshooting with artists that way, like, okay, well, we'll make that happen somehow. And I think that was a really great skill for me as an artist to learn that, um, to be in that like dip period is a really awesome place to be as an artist where you're kind of stuck as some, something's like not letting you continue with your process for material wise, or you just don't, maybe it's stale in the medium that it already is but I like to say that you have to like put it through the blender one more time. So like now video it, now take a photo of it, now paint it. If that work that you're working on starts to be stale, it's like you're stuck in this dip and you just gotta put it in the blender to get back out of that dip again. And sometimes I think just um, explaining your, your process or your project to somebody else, that's, that dip, that blender brings you all kinds of possibilities. So I try to make it as a process for myself to even like, I have this tendency to have all these ideas, uh, say in my sketchbook, and then I really am not going to work on it until I tell another person about it. <laughs> until I utter the words out loud, I'm not actually going to do it, <laughs> most likely. It's like the second you start to inject outside forces, you kind of have to uh, come through on it, mm -hmm. which is really what I need as an artist too, because I have lots of lofty ideas, grandiose ideas that I have no business having or trying to pull off. But sometimes I say it out loud and people go, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, I know how to do that. X, Y, Z, da, 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 da. And then that person kind of becomes an accomplice <laughs> in a way, like, Oh, you are in this with me now because I told you about it. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I've gotten myself into a few situations like that where I absolutely would never have made that unless I had involved more people. Do you worry about saying things out loud? Does it stop you from voicing no. your ideas or no? I think it just makes it real for me. It makes it more concrete, the fact that it's out loud because I spent so much time in my head, honestly, like, negotiating what's uh, <laughs> like a real idea that you want to push forward and one's one that's like well that's a crazy idea but that's not really a good idea 
if you can figure out how to distinguish those two things, let me know because sometimes they're very closely related. <laughs> uh-huh. And they can morph from one into the other pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So that brings me down to Charlotte. And then I, that was basically an in-between year that I was living in Charlotte. So I ended up applying to graduate schools because I had heard that was the thing to do as an artist. <laughs> After a year of internships, it was like either I could start to have a career path or um, go to grad school and still be able to be an artist in a way that I was really attracted to. And I was fortunate to get a really great offer at the University of Iowa for a fellowship. Um, in the first two years, I was on a fellowship. And then the third year, I taught drawing, which was really awesome. And that was when I was kind of teaching all these crazy ideas of the dip and drawing charts of like what it's like to be an artist. And I think as a drawing teacher, I'm maybe a little abstract for a first drawing class, but I really enjoyed it. And I think my, my students really enjoyed it because I would ask them, you know, what's the impetus of what you're making? What's, what's your thesis, basically? What's the concept here? It's interesting that you like to draw Pokemon, but what would be more interesting is if you came up with your own things like that. Like, oh, this is an interesting way that you're thinking about that, but it's maybe kind of conventional. So let's kind of rewind to see what's a genuine way to make artwork that it can kind of come from you. Because that's like a number one need for me to appreciate artwork and for my artwork. It's like, it's gotta come from a genuine place. Otherwise it kind of falls stale to me. What do I mean by that? <laughs> I kind of mean that, well, because my work is so uh, landscape and place-based that it's kind of a scientific process for me to go to a place with a question, like a thesis. What does this place mean to me? And then I go to that place and I'm just open. I'm open for a long time with that place in a genuine kind of uh, investigation. So for me, that's taking photos, 35 millimeter photos, I use a really shitty camera, like a film camera, because it's just about like capturing that very moment. And sometimes even the movement and everything in that camera is really important as a, as a filter. Um, sometimes I'll take photos on my, on my cell phone because that is another filter. Any kind of media is a different way of seeing. I trust my eye, but I'm also interested in the ways that other tools can see. And so sometimes I'll write about a place as well um, and a lot of the time I'll, uh, I'll start to collect things from that place. So garbage, a lot of the time I'm like in a backpack collecting garbage, but then also things that start to speak to me that about that place specifically. And sometimes it's not revealed until I visit that place multiple times that I start to see the cyclical nature of it. So for instance, uh, South Beach here in Port Washington has kind of been one of those sites where I continue to rein reinvestigate partly because it's part of my hometown that I feel like I can't really fully ever understand because it's always changing with me. And partly because as an artist, I have had a struggle with investigating my hometown for some reason, that it's, uh, it seems to be the biggest task in a way, and maybe a lifetime one. But I like to revisit that beach. And for instance, this is a project that I've been doing for a while. I've been photographing these um, beachwood structures that uh, random people are making on the beach. They look like teepees. Um, so I have a collection of photos of each time I see one of those on the beach and they're always in a different kind of shape. 
for the most part, they're always in the same spot. I'm really interested in what brings a person to want to contribute to that sculpture. I'm interested in the same walk that everybody takes. It's like a quarter of a mile down the beach, which means that everyone has picked up a piece of beech wood and walked with it to leave it there to make this like communal sculpture. And I'm interested in a way that they're like, they're marking that land and that same action that the community is taking, whether or not they know that they're participating in this like collaborative sculpture. I think it's just like so awesome. So I keep photographing that piece. Um, and I have taken pieces of beechwood back to my studio and created a, like a beechwood wreath that I have since then taken back to that beach and sort of activated in a performance, which is now a video that I'm working on. So sometimes the work starts to evolve into um, like a whole body of work that surrounds that place. So sometimes it'll be a sculpture or a video or performance, but it's all a part of this like investigation of me trying to fully understand that landscape through our work or through my, my means of making work. That's Let's like see. a project that I'm very much uh, is kind of in process right now. And I'm really excited by the fact that it's not finished and the fact that I've been working on it for maybe three years now. It's a collection of photogravure prints of those Beechwood sculptures. It's photographs of those sculptures. And now this video might become um, actually a collaboration with a musician that I used to live with in Iowa, a trumpet player. He sent me this he wants a video to go along with this um, composition called Clearing Dawn Dance. And it, it's like, it fell out of the sky that, that audio that I needed perfectly for this video. And then the title of it was like exactly what I was kind of looking for. So I'm really excited to see how that um, transpires. And that sculpture is still kind of in flux too, because now it's kind of act, that beechwood wreath is uh, six feet wide. And I made it at the start of COVID. So I was, well, at the start of January in 2020, I was taking those beechwood pieces back to my studio and starting to weave them. And this is an interesting thing that I made it six feet wide um, to be reminiscent of the Vitruvian man but also so it could fit through the door of my studio. But also it's like, well, then the six foot really started to be the significance that we would just can't ignore. And I was in my studio by myself making this six foot diameter around myself. And I just really could not ignore all of this, the symbolism of that. Um, so it's still really lingering with me as a, as a project. Is yeah. the piece on the beach right now? It's not, it's, it's in your um, studio. It's in my studio. And I like to do this glazing kind of process where things get gold or silverized or like hot press foiled. So this is a process of kind of me metallicizing objects. And that like glazing process is really important to me because it kind of, it elevates those objects from that landscape that I brought them in. It's like, they come into my studio and then they get elevated from the banal to the sublime of the studio practice, but also kind of memorialized in like a conventional way, gold gilding. I grew up Catholic, so I went to a church that was filled with gold things. And that's how I came to artwork was that it's very significant if it 
shimmers and gleans and even learning more about learning more about geology and what attracts the human eye is really interesting. I learned that anything that shimmers, we are attracted to as a very basic primal instinct because of water. Our humans are used to seeing the glimmer of water and knowing that that's a really useful resource and something really special that we should pay attention to. I was like, wow, duh. So I'm going to make everything just glimmer a little bit so it could catch your eye, but also so it's memorializing that thing and elevating it to a new object. So that that beef, beechwood wreath has moments of gold beechwood and hot press foil and kind of glimmers. And then it's held together by resin. So it has drips of resin on it that kind of mirror what happens at the beach during the winter when everything is this glaze of ice over it. And it just, everything looks like a diamond on the, on the beach. It's really lovely. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of mimicking that process as well. And so the beach wood wreath is just held together by resin. Um, so it's kind of in an interesting state where it, it should be quite strong, but if I start to roll it around and use it on the beach as I, as I was, it's maybe not as strong a state as it once was, but I'm interested in it as a sculpture. If it were in a, a, like a white cube space that it would be quite literally six distance, six feet distance between you and I, and what that, that significance could be now. Yeah. So that's one project (laughs) that I'm kicking around. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the work you're creating for this exhibit? Let me, let me read what it says about what you're doing for this exhibit. Okay. Nicole's mimicking geological formations are a record and memorial to women's studio practice. One piece of working record, cast off detritus, laid like layers of mica harvested from your studio. The other, stalactites to immortalize a past artist mentor through her departed collection of sea glass. Yeah. And this, these two works are... Um, Really, they talk about that transition of studio because I created these um, in a studio downtown Port Washington that I had for the last two years, all through the COVID pandemic, where I was creating those some resin sculptures. And that, that studio used to belong to a Shirley Gruen, who was like uh, the great Port Washington painter that probably ever existed. So... And she, she lived until like 95. She passed away this year, I think 95, something like that. And she was painting until the day she passed, but her um, interest in life were sailing and painting Port Washington. um, My studio was where her studio used to be. And I was looking down in the, in the basement one day and I came across jars of Shirley's old sea glass collection, which I'm assuming is from the same beach that I keep frequenting or around Lake Michigan here because she was so in Port Washington her whole life. And I took that that collection of sea glass because I'm so attracted to collections and geology and why somebody collects things, all of this reason, like so obsessed with objects. Um, And I took them up to my studio and they were there for a while. And then I started casting them into these, into the forms that you see. They're like, they're cast into some vases. Um, And I started doing that in layers. You have to pour them down with layers of resin and add in in the sea glass. And as I was doing that, that was when Shirley passed away. The significance of that is like so mind-blowing to me. 
Um, and so those, the, the um, sculptures ended up taking on a new life as artwork does if it takes a longer time. And I'm interested in that life that it can change. But they started to be like these talismans or um, maybe like a baton of sorts that uh, kind of encased her, her energy to me that they kind of, they ended up being this um, total embodiment of her devotion to creating and being in place, all of that and the significance of the studio. So I ended up creating 13 of those sculptures. Um, I'm thinking of them, of them as like stalactites because they'll be hanging from a chain. And I'm interested in that chain sort of being a metaphor for me carrying them around, me carrying around the life of past artists and their, their drive to be an artist their whole lives and all of the devotion that happens with creating. And the layers of those objects are really significant as well because it, in each one of those um, stalactites, there's layers. So you can almost see each time I went to the studio to pour a layer of resin. It's like a, a schedule almost, or like a geological core sample of being in the studio that if you counted back and maybe if I kept better records, you could say that that down there is January, 2021 or whatever. So that's interesting to me that they're kind of records of the studio, they're records of that specific place of my time in it, but also paying homage to the person who was there before me. And I'm interested in um, what happens if those batons get passed as well. So that might be another way that this sculpture keeps going on beyond being shown in the Indiana Green show. Beyond being a collection of 13 sculptures together, they might get passed to another artist as like a baton. So not only are you taking these materials, transforming them into something other than their original purpose, giving them new meaning, but even once you're done with them, they might go through another transformation with someone else. It doesn't end with you. There's this big cycle of materials and meaning. Yeah, absolutely. And if we go back to like graduate school at Iowa, because I was on those two years of fellowship, they said, take any classes that you want, that you find an interest in. And I'm a huge nerd and I'm, so I took geology classes. I want to know more about rocks. I want to know about their cycles, uh, the history of them. I find so interesting and in that we are just a blip on geological time. Like humans barely matter. <laughs> The, the earth has been doing some wild things since way before we got here. And then there's evidence of all of that all around us. We are walking around on that evidence all damn day. So that is really interesting to me. That And we are also affecting that geological time. So uh, they have since defined our current geological time as the age of the Anthropocene. So if you take a core sample in the future of the earth, you will see our geological time right now, probably as a layer of plastic, all of the other detritus, the garbage that we're leaving behind. That's really interesting to me that the human, that us humans and me as an artist, we are being a geological force on these, these um, inorganic forms.
So the studio practice is kind of in a, a way to mimic that metamorphosis as well. I'm taking those objects and making them metallic or making them harder or softer or layered or fractured in a way that mimics geology. Okay, that just kind of blew my mind right there about the plastic, that yeah. our layer is plastic and garbage. Right. Oh. The other piece that's going to be in Indiana Green is another interesting record of that studio. The, my previous studio, I just described Shirley's, where I was making the stalactites. So I also created the second piece that's going to be in Indiana Green is a record of that studio time. So all of the resin that was dripped from another sculpture got thrown into this other sculpture. So it's starting to be, well, it's layers of resin um, as like a record of the studio. So if you look at the bottom, those are probably the oldest like leftover pieces of my studio. And it's starting to form this like a uh, big specimen of mica in my head this like really thin um, geology that builds up over time it's really interesting to have like a material that's literally cast it caught everything from my studio bits of beech wood all kinds of garbage is also in it that it's kind of like this uh, time capsule for that studio time I put up some lights up underneath it. So it's really starting to become this like supercharged object that seems like maybe otherworldly that maybe you too could somehow catch some of my like studio energy from it. I'm interested in this place between the natural and the fantasy. So, so my sculptures are always kind of in between thinking that you know what it is and having the cadence of something familiar that kind of just like rubs you in an inquisitive way where you might think that you know what it is or see something identifiable in it but the larger function of the object is quite strange <laughs> maybe only known to me or um interpretable so so what are the what are the reactions you're expecting from your audience do you have or that you'd like to see from people who are looking at this? Um, I like when viewers come at it with the same scientific um, inquisitiveness that I came to the objects where they're trying to identify what it is or trying to figure out where it came from, maybe. I just, I sent another series of objects like this to another exhibition in Illinois. And I think maybe I'll just read you the little statement that I have for those objects too. Sure. Because it's very explanatory. Uh, it says, I hope that if you, some ethnographer, are asked to piece this all together, that you might be able to discern what happened here. Time and process has collapsed on these specimens. They have been pulled out, dropped, cut, glazed, hardened, foiled, and made sample from a landscape between reality and fantasy. Uh, I try to get a grasp on place, like how it feels to know the weight of a rock in your hand. Time has been fizzling differently since March 2020. I feel like I can't get a good sense of the rate. Too many cancellations, launches, and artificialities followed by acceptance, abandonment, and adaptation. Little direction has been given, no notable beginning or foreseeable end, only evidence and detritus. 
I think that uh, I'm trying to still figure out what what the hell has been happening. And um, time has been doing something interesting to, I think, a lot of people in the last year that um, my attempt to try to understand that is through objects, um, even if that object is not reminiscent of this exact reality. That's really powerful. So how do you think about the life of one of your pieces as it leaves your studio, which is a much more intimate place, right? And going out into this bigger space where people are interacting with it. It sounds like the question I just asked about people's reaction to it, but I feel like there might be something personal for you that happens once it leaves your space. Yeah, I feel like it's still living its life in a way. Um, because they are these like geologies and they seem like a collection that I'm kind of excited for them that they get to go and live off in another place. They've, they, um, I'm really interested in the idea of a glacier erratic. Let me just explain that to you. That's like, um, when the glaciers come down, they sometimes grab a rock and keep going with their mission and accidentally plop it down. And then the glaciers recede and what happens is that you find that a rock has been placed from somebody somewhere that it, like it really doesn't belong where it's been plopped. It's identified as someplace else, but the glacier has uh, taken it for a ride and decided its path for it. That I think is really fun. And then, so that might be a process, but maybe somebody comes along and then picks up that glacier erratic and does whatever the hell they want to do with it. Um, because the life of geology is so incredibly long and the future is not defined for that object. I see my role as just a, um, a blip on a series of that object's life. So it's really exciting for me that I can con control where that thing goes. Um, for instance, I, I sent some objects to that show in Illinois and I'm already thinking about what happens with them when they're finished. And I just recently contacted a geologist that I know from Iowa, and he's actually gonna accept those sculptures next and run them through a series of geological tests. So like uh, X-ray scans and um, cut slides off of it from microscopes, all kinds of things. And he was asking a lot of questions and I wasn't giving him all of the answers. I said, you know, a box of objects are going to arrive, please try to identify them, you know? So it's exciting because there are parts of these objects that are geological, but most of them are manufactured in the studio. I'm curious to see what that like diagnosis will look like. And uh, like I said, I'm like a fake scientist as an artist. Like I like all of those processes, but I'm not really interested in getting like the real answer. I want to get an answer that's specific to that object that keeps getting altered. So I am thinking more about what that the longevity of an object and even more of as like an archival standpoint, going back to my years as archiving, what that kind of looks like if it ends up needing to be in some sort of catalog of time or place. Sure. I want to talk a little bit about this handmade and tactility piece that this Indiana green exhibit is sort of all about. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if there's anything that happens in 
I don't know, your emotional or mental landscape, when you think about the tactility of the material that you're using, that you're touching it and you're feeling it, you're sharing it with an audience, what does it evoke in you like at that very moment as you're, as you're touching and moving and manipulating? Can you share that with us? What happens? Yeah, if I could identify it. Is there just a feeling that happens? Yeah, and um, uh, I'm going to steal this from a drawing professor of mine that I had. Uh, he called it the ooh factor. So if you're ever like wondering what kind of materials, and this is great advice for beginning artists to go to a, art, a craft store like Blick and just walk around and buy the thing that you're most attracted to. That's what you should be working with. It's very primal and basic, but that's how I navigate my studio practice. Uh, I go out into a landscape or into a place I'm interested in, and I wait for the ooh factor. That's my genuine interaction with a place. So when I'm working in the studio, I'm yeah using the ooh factor. I kind of I amass things around me. I think artists love to do this, where we're like we're strategic hoarders. We're hoarders only when we call ourselves hoarders, like we're doing it on purpose kind of thing. Um, so in my studio, you'll probably have like broken glass over there. Like I'm keeping that for a reason. Don't touch that. <laughs> um, I, most things in my studio now have a place where they go instead of the trash because everything is kind of a material that I should still be working with because so much of my work is, I am focused on the Anthropocene and trying to be mindful of not generating more garbage for this world through my art practice. So if I can at least like eliminate the garbage that I'm accruing from creating, I think that's a good process to try to get into. And it also gives you the the ooh factor for materials that you probably wouldn't have or you might have overlooked. So I think it's important to like surround yourself with materials that you're just innately attracted to and try not to buy materials. <laughs> Frank also talked about the presence of the handmade. Mm. When you hear that word handmade, what does that bring up for you? What does that mean to you when it's handmade? Um, right when you said that, I thought of Penland School of Craft and Design. It's in North Carolina. Um, in between under, undergrad and grad school, I was able to be a, um, a print tech for Jan Sayre, who actually, she owns the warehouse. Milwaukee monotype artist. Uh, she was teaching a monotype workshop there. So I helped her with that um, workshop, but mostly the people that go to Penland are makers, people that are just interested in learning new skills to make the handmade, but like ceramics, um, glass, printmaking, they have all the disciplines there. But it's just like a wonderful place to get to be around like-minded people that also just like to make and share all those loops of making. And I think artists are just so wonderful because there's people aren't, artists aren't protective over their practice or the, their way of making things in a way that um, maybe other professions are more protective over the way that they achieve their success. And I think that artists are more open to trying to share our struggles, uh, our learning, so artists can continue to 
make without the frustrations of troubleshooting in a really wonderful way. But I just appreciate pretty much anything handmade. You can tell people appreciate handmade things if they pick up a mug and they immediately turn it over to see whose it was, like to see if it's signed on the bottom. Um, so yeah, you open my cupboard, it says it's full of mugs from Penland, from Anderson Ranch Art Center. I love to go to residencies and workshops and pre-COVID, that was kind of my MO as an artist every three months or so I was going to residencies and meeting new artists in a new place. The Handmaid is awesome. There's a, a quote about The Handmaid, if I can remember it. The future belongs to those who are still willing to get their hands dirty. Yes, yes. So you can't be afraid to get yourself dirty and wet and your clothes that you're wearing and everything. I think like the handmade comes first and the person, the artist comes secondary. Like I know artists are just constantly um, searching for that, that awesome moment of flow when you've been working for hours on end and you stand up and you go, Oh, I haven't eaten <laughs> right. bathroom, answered my phone. Like, um, I think artists are kind of chasing that serotonin from being in flow all the time. Like that's a really special thing as an artist to be able to carve out that much time in your life that you can just devote to just making and the handmade and what's right in front of you and all of the struggles and the rewards that come with focusing on one thing for a really long time. Yeah, between flow and the ooh factor, you know you've got it made when those two things are going on, right? Exactly. So about the physicality, I think we all know that, you know, being creative leads to positive changes in your body, right? It lowers your stress levels and it can improve your mood and all of that stuff. But there's also other aspects of phys physicality of working with the materials that have some negative impacts, right? Do you have to do things to recover from your studio practice? What do you do to take care of yourself in that way? Yeah, people keep warning me that I'm going to burn out. <laughs> I've been warned for a long time. You're going to burn out. You're going to burn out. Um, and I think those people just realize that it's never going to happen. <laughs> no, I think, well, I, I, I burn out, but um, kind of like a cat where I like hide away while I'm burning out. So as to not bother anybody with the fact that I need to be resting. And my, my studio practice right now is in, well, first of all, it's in a closet. So I haven't been creating because I'm moving to a new studio. But usually my process is kind of like a, a dump and dash type situation where I'm mixing the resin and leaving it be. So maybe the process of being in the studio is only an hour or two hours right now. And even painting is kind of like that where... I'm a, I'm a dumper. So I'll mix up a lot of uh, slurry or something and layer it up over time instead of like one big session of seven hours of painting. It might take a few weeks of me layering up a painting and letting it dry. And so sometimes that is a struggle to like make a, make a schedule of going to attend to that thing that needs to be attended to instead of having just a carved out period of time. So for instance, uh, I was in the 30 by 30 show at VAR Gallery this year. So you have to make 30 artworks in 30 days in January. What a way to start out 
2021, let me tell you. Um, and because those works are um, a collection of landscape images and uh, found materials that kind of collapse what you think of as a landscape or maybe your memory of that landscape having that kind of collapse in on it itself. And they, they are reminiscent of geology as well. So they're kind of like gems of landscapes containing found materials. And to make those pieces, I had to suspend them and kind of make a jig where the resin would be dumped on top of them and they would dry. So they ended up kind of having like this icicle effect on them from the drips accumulating. And I love that accumulation of time in sculpture. But that project was really pretty intense because for resin, you have to wait for it to cure. There's like a four hour curing time. So for the four hours, you might be able to do one more layer, but for it to fully cure, you have to leave it for two days to fully cure. So after four hours, you have to either decide to leave it or pour another layer type of thing. So uh, for 30 by 30, I was really kind of having to plan out and be very strict about going to the studio every single day so I could get a pour in because otherwise the 30 days are going to go really quickly for making 30 artworks. It wasn't like I could sit down and create one in a day. They were all kind of cooking at the same rate right. for 30 days. And that's like dump and dash situation because resin isn't the greatest type of thing to be around. Uh, I wear a, a mask, a ventilator when I do it. And my studio at the time is much smaller. So it's perfect for curing times because it has to be at a certain temperature to cure. And that was like a block from my house. So I'd, I'd dump the resin and get the hell out of there and go home. So the studio practice is just a little bit different than maybe in the past when I've been maybe making a print or a painting or something where you're afforded the time to kind of look and hum and ha over every mark that you're making sculpture is more strategic where you kind of have to plan out things um, a bit more in advance which I think I'm getting better at <laughs> yeah and so you might be wondering why I'm always making different artworks <laughs> and different materials because as I'm thinking now I'm like well I'll probably never do that again and that's usually how I feel about a project is I love the way that that turned out and the life that it had, but I'm probably never going to do that process again because of my own natural uh, curiosities. Uh, maybe I'll try something harder or bigger or take more time next time. Is there something in your studio that you can't live without? Yeah. And it's actually not in my studio. It's with me all the time. Um, and it's a sketchbook, but it's a really not a sketchbook at all, which is, funny from somebody who is a drawer and a painter I keep uh writing with me all the time and I've done it since I think maybe 15 plus years now so I have all all these sketchbooks all the journals that I've kept from day-to-day -day life and also it's kind of like to-do lists um so it might be Marn information is in here it, a lot of prose that happen here little sketches here and there for projects. But for the most part, it's um, like a catch all for the mind dump. It's like, if you can keep every little scratch of paper that you've ever had, like that's what I'm kind of trying to do here. Like anything might be precious later that I might want to hold on to. So that's like the, that's the thing that continues 
throughout my practice that probably won't waver just because I think it's one of those things that's too far. <laughs> I've made too much of an investment at this point. And also I feel like maybe one day they might reveal themselves to be a fuller project. Do you go back and look at them or once it's out of your head, does that release something that lets other things come into your Yeah. Every once in a while I'll go back through some, and it's really funny as a person that's like so obsessive compulsive and like into archiving and file organization and everything. The sketchbooks aren't dated or numbered. I think they're all on my desk here, maybe like 60 of them. (laughs) So if somebody ever encountered my archive, it might take them a while to decipher which one comes first. Yeah, there are some things to revisit in there. And then like, as it's as as it feels hearing your own voice speak, it's like, I don't really want to know what I thought of five years ago. And because it's, it's a lot of automatic writing and um, descriptive writing. Uh, A lot of times I'm writing down like motifs that I feel like keep coming back into my life. Like uh, one that keeps reoccurring that I've noticed is I oftentimes write in bed. And I've had next to my bed for however many years, there's always an aloe plant sitting there. Every place I've moved to, Uh, so that starts to become like a motif that carries through my life that I, just because it's there, it kind of starts to be embodied or personified based on what I'm writing about. So that's interesting to me. And also a lot of it's nonsense. So I pity the person that ever has to read this because, (laughs) or if they decide to, because some of it is important and a good lot of it isn't but it's um, things that I'm going to start to notice after a while. And it's really reflective for making artworks because I'm so not writing about it when I'm making it. And yet, because I make work that's so in theory genuine and comes exactly from me and my identity of place, that it really is reflective a lot of the time of the artwork that I'm creating. So artist statements come from that a lot of the time or like fractions of that. Let's talk about this thing that is yours that keeps coming up in conversations you have with people. It shows up in your writings, in your journals. It finds its way into your creative work. Do you have and can you articulate an authentic obsession, a genuine obsession of yours? Yeah, I knew you would ask me that. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> we had to get to it sometime. Oh, point, right? Yeah, I thought maybe uh, like geology and I think geology might be it because that encompasses my, it, it oscillates between object and place. And I think that geology maybe gets both of those things, mm-hmm. um, which would be why I'm so attracted to that specific discipline. Yeah, object or geology perhaps, or landscape. My partner owns a landscaping company and his title for his company is sensible landscape solutions and I just keep thinking that I want to take that (laughs) and use it in my own practice I just think uh that's kind of what I'm getting at all the time is like my solution for how I feel in the world could be as sensible as just a rock like it could just be that thing right from then That's nice. Thank you. I think, um, yeah, we're, him and I are developing, well, we rented a new space out in Sockville. 
so the back half is all his landscaping materials and it's going to turn into our wood shop sculpture pad fun area for me and the front I'm working on it's maybe a thousand square feet it's big print shop and a dark room there's a little dark there's a little closet in there that I've painted black that enlargers are going to go into Um, I was fortunate enough to get a press from Jenny Gao she's moving to Vancouver and she she gave me two presses my studio is all shoved into one of these like side rooms right now because I'm in the process of painting it and ripping out this horrific carpet carpet and the next step is to pour down an epoxy floor. So it's fun, maybe, <laughs> as an artist, but it's like so fun because it's the dream studio. So I'm like being a real nerd about it and drawing out, you know, my floor plans and putting my flat files on casters. Everything will be able to move around and um, I'm trying to be patient enough with the painting and the construction of it, knowing that. The reward is going to be so sweet. It's like so wonderful. And I can't wait to have it be a collaborative space to invite more artists into to come make special edition prints and hang out with me and all of those things. It's really great. It's along the river in Sockville. So it's kind of out in the woods that I get a little bit of a drive and to decompress. And I don't have internet out there or anything yet that it's still kind of a really beautiful sanctuary that I'm excited to build out. I'm in a major transition period. And as an artist to have all my wonderful things and my collections, like in boxes, I'm trying to like put out of my mind with the prospect of this like shiny new studio and big desks and wall space. Like I just am really excited. That sounds amazing. Yeah. And that's like, um, so my practice is kind of like, it's, it's uh, nicely tied up right now with this, the Indiana green objects, Mm -hmm. because that really was like um, an homage to that last studio in a really wonderful way that I feel like I kind of bottled up all that energy into this sculpture right now. And um, it, it, it helps me with like that, that whole process, I think. So I can't promise what any of the work is gonna be like in the new studio because it is so, it's always so based on place. Um, and that's really exciting to me that that is totally open-ended. Talk a little bit about your new gig with MARN, which is the Milwaukee Artist Resource Network. Yes. MARN has been in existence for over 10 years. Two years ago, we're given a really great gift from an anonymous benefactor to open the MARN Art and Culture Hub, which is down in the third ward 191 North Broadway and you walk inside and off to the left is a maker's marketplace right in front of you is FOMA that's a coffee and wine bar that's ran by high school and college age students Um, and they learn real world skills to leave that job with they know how to just be distributor manager they take ownership of their whole position there so it's a really exciting like group of people to constantly be around um, that are learning more about how to take ownership in a position like that and continue to grow. Our head chef is, he just turned 17 and is making like awesome food. And it's just like so infectious to be around because people are 
they have already defined their channel of life in a way that they are just like excited that somebody has finally given them the permission to say that this is all yours. Go for it. We are excited to see what you can do. And Marn is exactly like that too. I'm, I'm part of the best team around. My coworkers are such a joy to be around that we are constantly feeding off of each other and learning more and innovating and pushing yourselves to be um, this beacon in Milwaukee that artists have really been searching for for the longest time. Um, we have a, around 300 members for MARN that's included in our, Mar our member directory on our website, marnarts.org. Um, in addition to a lot of other benefits that you get as a MARN member. Um, I came to MARN through their MARN mentors program uh, last year and Nirmal Raja was my mentor and she took me by the hand and um, showed me around Milwaukee into all, and introduced me to all these wonderful people. And I can't be more grateful to that because I was up here in Port Washington and really trying just to know artists around in the area and in Milwaukee. And Marn is just like this intro introduction. They're just so wonderful about just connecting artists. And now we finally have a place where all we ask is that you come down and get a coffee and mingle with other artists that happen to be doing the same thing. It's really infectious and just like so wonderful to be around. I can attest to that. We were yeah. down there on Sunday and just dropped in spontaneously and ended up staying for probably an hour and a half. It was just a great space. It's a great space. The exhibit is wonderful. The baristas are lovely. <laughs> you know, everything. Yeah. It's and just all great. In the rotating exhibition, mm -hmm. gallery exhibition hall that's ran by uh, Riley Nemock. And she's has a rotating exhibition schedule. I think of five exhibitions in a year, including a member show, a partner exhibition. We're open to all kinds of ideas. So <laughs> please reach out with your ideas. So it's the canvas for places. It's the canvas for artists to come in and work. And we are the catalyst for community, for whatever your idea is that we can help try to get off the ground. Mm -hmm. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Uh, tell us a little bit about your relationship with social media and how you engage with your audience. Yeah, that's a good question because I think it's a love-hate relationship with social media, like most people. I recently made the decision to leave Facebook, which was a very fun thing because I'm so much of a visual person that the only, the kind of social media that I'm most attracted to is Instagram because it's uh, just a photo. And um, I've always kind of struggled with words and find myself gravitating more towards visuals and having to write down in a specific way how I feel or sharing. And Facebook is just like a hotbed of, like riding on people's emotions and I feel like a whole lift off of my shoulders after leaving Facebook, but I love Instagram and I do realize that that's the same company. And I know, I know, um, but I feel like there's less opportunity for like this um, kind of hate speech or the back and forth wasted energy of engaging with somebody in the comments or in the DMS. And, but my Instagram is sort of, and I'm not even using the Instagram like you're supposed to because Instagram used to be Instagram. It used to just be the photo that you took right then with the phone. And I kind of alluded it to it earlier, but I take photos with a 35 millimeter 
and actually I started taking photos with um, an old cam like a film camera um, after finding one exactly like this in my dad's boat. So next to like where the Twizzlers got thrown around is like the camera that he would take his musky photos with or like a picture of the sunset basically. S exclusively that's what the camera took pictures of. I spent the role and then I got it developed and a really awesome thing happened when I got it developed is that the photos, of course, were only my dad holding like a musky fish because he would catch the fish, put it on a timer, stand in front of it. You know, it's only him on the boat. So like that whole action of that photo was great to me. Um, and it said like, you know, the timestamp in the corner, like it used to, you know, 2003 or something. And he's got the Wisconsin badger hat on and the lake is in the background and a musky. And the next photo is like 2004, same hat, different fish, different lake, same pose. <laughs> and then it would be like a picture of a sunset and then like another, you know, trophy photo. That's it. That's the only thing that this camera ever took pictures of. And even the same role went over like many years. And so I was like so attracted to that idea of this object and the things that it could happen to collapsing time and um, being self-descriptive of like that place and the actions of that place. So I started carrying that around with me a lot more and now it's um, becoming quite part of the practice and like this building of this archive of place. I'm pretty much a take pictures of landscape only kind of person. I love people, but there's something about the figure in landscape that I'm not that interested in or like a very descript kind of person. So maybe if a figure is in a photo, it's probably just a, a silhouette or something so that viewer can still approach the landscape as if they're part of it as well. So I, I walk around with this camera all the time and I'm shooting film in 2021. And I, I send the film in the mail to thedarkroom.com, which is in California. So I like that the film has, the pictures have to go someplace else to like do their journey, right? And they develop the film and they send me um, high resolution photos back. So I'll share those on Instagram. Um, and then I also get the film back in my possession. And I've been developing that in the dark room doing like black and white prints. And um, so the landscape then kind of shifts. It keeps shifting when it comes back to my studio. It might get printed or monotyped on or. Um, that landscape keeps changing, but the Instagram is where I just share those high resolution scans. And those could be, you know, months old photos. <laughs> so people will see my Instagram and they'll be like, oh, you're in Utah. And it's like, yeah, I'm not though. So, but I kind of like to live my life where it's not really anybody's business what the hell I'm doing anyways. Uh, <laughs> so that's what I'm sharing on Instagram. If ever you're confused, it's part of this whole archive of photos that um, I'm still building. And that's another one of those projects that I have said out loud to a few people that uh, it will at some point manifest, but it's still kind of in a building of an archive of those images that might be in a book at some point. And I think the title would be something like mountains and or in between seas. And the idea is that it's Somebody asked me at one point in my life, if I had to live in one place, would it be mountains or seas? And I, that question has always kind of stuck with me. 
Um, so the, I think the book would be sort of like, it would begin with mountains and then do a middle period where it's like bridges and tunnels and all these like in-between spaces, or maybe it's both mountains and seas and then end with just water sea kind of places. So that's been archiving maybe for four years, beginning with a trip that I took to Iceland, but I'm really, uh, attracted to these like really sublime landscapes where that have mountains and crags and glaciers and the extremes of landscape because I live in Wisconsin and I grew up here and I kind of feel like I understand this landscape and so anything that's like on these extremes is really fascinating to me and those images get worked into all kinds of different artwork too that's what my Instagram is and also connecting with artists is just like such a valuable resource and maybe it's like that for other people using Instagram but I feel like for artists it's a perfect introduction where like you can just send somebody an inbox and say, I really like your work. Can we collaborate or do you want to meet up or there is a uh, less of a risk <laughs> with social media because you could just throw something out into the ether and it's uh, not concrete and maybe it could manifest into something or maybe not, but at least you asked. And that's a perfect introduction. Instagram, I think. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else you want to share before we go to our rapid fire questions? Oh, no, thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, if you could sit down with another female artist and have a conversation like this one, is there someone that you really admire that you would like to talk to and what would you ask them? Yes. I've always been a fan of Susan Rothenberg. She's a painter and she just passed away, I think maybe two years ago recently. Um, but she's, she was, there's a great art 21 of her where they show her working in her New Mexico studio. Um, and they show her just like in the morning going, waking up, getting breakfast, um, she kisses her husband, who's an, also an artist. He goes to his studio and she goes to her studio and she sits there and she's smoking a cigarette and she looks at her painting and she's describing like some days I don't even, I don't uh, do anything all morning until lunch happens. And then I have to get up and at least make one mark. And she goes up to a painting and makes one mark. She goes and has lunch and comes back and like takes off the mark that she made. And she describes it as, you know, some days I go to the studio and I might, might not do anything, but the, the work is there. Me going and being in the space, that's the work. And I just always thought it was like, that's the one thing that I want to do in life is to figure out how to be out in the middle of nowhere and make my work. And that's the work, even if the work doesn't get done. And there is the interest from the outside world to continue to give me the validation to continue to make work. And I just would just ask her, how the hell can I get to that point to do that and like get that dream life would be amazing. I just, I've always really idolized her like way of life and um, her paintings are about how, how she sees too. So when she moved out to New Mexico, she describes that all of her paintings started to have this like downward perspective because she was, she was constantly on top of something looking down. And just like that sentiment there that you could move somewhere and that your your studio practice and the all of the artwork and everything that you 
thought you knew how to make, I mean, she was known in the 60s for making these horse paintings. She moves to New Mexico where there's probably tons of horses, but the, the meaning of making that horse as like an iconography is not the thing that you do in New Mexico. <laughs> I guess it's uh, being there and experiencing the land. And I think I just learned a lot from like the way that she spoke about work and the conviction of being an artist and continuing on your path, regardless of any uh, <laughs> winnings or awards or things, recognition. Okay. Can you describe a favorite outdoor spot? Yeah, I'm constantly changing that outdoor spot. Uh, initially, I'm going to say the South Beach because that's uh, in Port Washington. That's a, a place where I ritualistically go there to regulate myself for restart. Um, but I also learned about the Ozaki Washington Land Trust when I was directing Art Servancy, which has like 30 plus properties in Ozaki Washington County that are donated from people. So maybe they'll have a property that they inherit and they donate it to the land trust so it stays in conservation. So for instance, there's a Forest Beach Migratory Preserve that's up where Squires, a golf course used to be. And it's actually the biggest conserved piece of land along Lake Michigan. And it's for all of these land trusts are free and open to the public. So you can go to any of these trusts and be the only person with like 100 acres to yourself of conserved land. So you'll see um, natural prairies and um, invasive species doing their thing. And um, to go to those places in Wisconsin in different seasons is really special because you start to see the land doing its own thing regardless of you being there. So sometimes you can see evidence of uh, another person who maybe visited before you the way that maybe a tree got knocked over through lightning from the last time you were there unbeknownst to everybody else. Like all those things are super special. And I see, I see the general public gravitating towards the same kinds of places. And I want to champion the land trust and uh, share that with your viewers that that is an opportunity for you to find solace in land without anybody, without having to pay and you're still furthering this mission of the land trust by just going there and knowing that you have accessibility in those places. Yeah, yeah, they're they're wonderful. I've been to many, many of them. And there's something, you're right, there's something really special about going back to the same place over and over again in different seasons or even in the same season and just watching the evolution of what the what the animals are doing, what the trees are doing, what the weather's doing. Mm -hmm. to the trees and the landscape. So, yeah, they're just like these little hidden gems all over. So, yeah. yeah. And uh, putting artists into those places is doing really interesting things as well. Yeah, it's really exciting because artists see in different ways and collect information in different ways. And I think that it's so valuable to champion those places through art artistic eyes and to put artists out there as kind of like a guinea pig because I think we're kind of we're open to ideas maybe more than the general public like we want to go out and explore and see and um, collect and interpret um, that I think it it gives permission for the general public to also go there and do the same thing to investigate to not go for any reason number of reasons to just go and be and to recreate yourself 
in recreation, the whole idea of recreation from Olmstead, the guy who designed Central Park, where he's like making all these winding paths and actually the same architect that designed the Milwaukee River Greenway in Milwaukee. So if you ever go along those paths down in the park and you're wondering why they're winding around and not taking you where you want to go, that's out of design to keep you there longer, to have you meditate in space, to wander and to go there without a purpose and to find yourself or to uh, meditate on yourself and restart. I just think that's like such a lovely idea. And all those places are here in Ozaki, Washington County, just waiting for anyone to go and see them. Thanks for the plug. All right, this should be an easy one. What's your comfort food? Chocolate, any kind of chocolate. <laughs> um, I knew you would ask me that and I've kind of have like an interesting relationship with food only because I'm an artist that gets caught into flow. And I think I like to say, I like the feeling of being empty that like eating will make me sleepy or like complacent or I use it as a reward or something, but chocolate is always welcomed. So that's the one. <laughs> All right. Last one. What three words best describe your creative practice? Mm. Manic landscape experiments. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you, Nicole. This has been such a pleasure. I feel like I could talk to you for another four hours and we probably will again. Well, next time, come down to the hub, the Marn Art and Culture Hub. We can have coffee or wine and both. <laughs> that sounds lovely. I'll do that. Thank you. Thanks, Margaret. I hope you liked this episode. It sure got me dreaming about a larger studio space and thinking about my next projects. All right, here are the takeaways. Number one, pay attention to the ooh factor, which is that genuine interaction with a place or object. Number two, if the work starts to get stale or you're stuck, put it in the blender to get out of the dip. Number three, it's got to come from a genuine place. Otherwise, it's kind of false. Number four, artists are strategic hoarders. And number five, the future belongs to those who are still willing to get their hands dirty. Thank you so much for listening. Acknowledge the mess and keep going. Bum bum bum